Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee here on the far end. Hopefully you can see me. And with us today, as you can tell, we're absolutely not in our normal studio. We are in the specialized wind tunnel and we have a few special guests with us. Uh, Chris, you, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for coming and visiting us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us. We want to talk all about aerodynamic takeaways that people can put into place to get faster today, whether it's adjustments to their gear, their position, anything else like that. Uh, so then hopefully folks can get faster. Um, what do you do at Specialized? So I lead a, a group called Integrated Technologies, and you can think of it kind of like a, a hodgepodge of different um, R&D groups ranging from the traditional stuff like aero and composites and structural analysis, things like that, all the way to human performance and a few of the future things. So it's the teams that inform what our product groups create ultimately. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and Dave, how about you? Uh, I guess intro yourself, forgive me, and then also what you do here. Yeah, thanks. I'm, uh, my name's Dave Kasel. I'm the leader of the component development here, primarily focused on Revol and all of our categories within the Revol brand. Uh, as well as development with power cranks and some cockpit items. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you guys are good ones to have to talk about all this stuff. Um, and we're uh, aero nerds. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Well, we're nerds too, so it's perfect. Um, I guess getting straight into this, let's describe, I guess, a little bit of the background on the wind tunnel. And people can go, by the way, to youtube.com slash I am specialized, I think, or perhaps it's just specialized, but you can find it on there and you can see all the different videos you guys have done. Um, even walk through a little bit of the history of the wind tunnel and how it came about. But I guess, how is this one unique and why is it better for cycling? Because that's kind of the interesting part for all of us since we're cyclists. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, about a little over five years ago, we opened this place. And uh, one of the original benefits that we wanted to create was uh, simply a, a wind tunnel that was right across the street from where all our desks are. So we had like 24-7 <laughs> access to it. But kind of even more importantly than that, there we realized that there weren't really any tunnels worldwide that were specifically catered to cycling and really just sports in general. And so the three main things that we identified that we built into this place were the speed range. Mm -hmm. It turns out it's really, really hard to build a tunnel and to find a facility that's able to go slow enough mm -hmm. for all the things that we care about in cycling. So even the world's fastest cyclist is incredibly slow compared to like an F1 car or an airplane. <laughs> and so speed range was one. Size is another. It's hard to see with, with this camera here, but this uh, test section is actually large enough to do a lot of the things that make cycling a sport, and that's yeah. riding with other people. And so drafting, sprint lead-out trains, team time trials, all of those things, we can fit many bikes into this facility and still get accurate data. And then finally, probably the most important one is a, a tunnel really isn't anything except a windy hallway unless you can measure forces. And so the thing that we measure forces on, it's called a force balance. Every tunnel pretty much has a force balance. But what's unique about ours is kind of the, the difference between measuring, uh, say, a Peter Sagan mm -hmm. um, or trying to make the next venge and finding a few grams of drag difference in a tube. And so the analogy we like to use is when you go and try to weigh something on a scale meant for weight, uh, you either buy something like a kitchen scale, which has incredibly high resolution down to subgram, but you're not going to be able to park a car on it. <laughs> Alternatively, if you want to measure how, car, how uh, heavy your car is, you go to the truck scale, but that's not going to give you the resolution to be able to identify a gram. And so our secret sauce in this tunnel is being able to build that um, force balance that's able to do really both of those things at the same time. So we can literally test and R&D tube shapes one day, and the next day have Peter Sagan come in and jump into a full sprint, and that same scale can handle it. Awesome, yeah, it's pretty cool. And that's how you can get such like, you can figure out the time that you save with all these little things. Um, I guess just jumping straight into it, um, Nate, we have a bunch of different questions that we should cover. We have a ton of questions. And we have limited time. Where do you so wanna start gonna, with this? Let's go fast. First, I just wanna say, if you don't realize that arrow matters, when you're going fast, what, what percentage of your effort the watch you're putting out is being taken up by aerodynamic draft drag let's say on a flat road that's a great question and, and it really is the reason behind our cheeky hashtag here which is uh, arrows everything because for the vast majority of cyclists uh it is the dominant force that you have to overcome so you punching a hole in the wind on a flat for a typical cyclist can be upwards of 80 plus percent of the total effort that you're putting out the energy that you're putting into their cranks is simply punching a hole through the wind yep. now it'll go up when you're climbing but it's still predominantly arrow. And we all feel this when we draft. That's why you draft. It's much, much easier. So what you guys usually talk about time saver for 40K, but we talked about this before. We're going to talk in terms of watts because our users know watts. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I could save 10 watts, 
Like if I did an FTP test and I had 10 more watts of power, I am like super happy. That's like six weeks of training. Yeah. Right? Yep. So sure. I think yeah. there are a lot of things that we can do that would add up to save more than 10 watts. Is Easily. That right? Easily. Easily. Yep. Okay. So the first thing, how bad are we compared to pros? Like, <laughs> like you know, you can take the average show and what's the difference between their like baseline setup to like a fully optimized pro? There's two, two sides of it. Um, there's the equipment side and then there's the position side. And compared to the average athlete, a pro has a leg up on all of us, unfortunately, in both of those. And so they have obviously access to the latest and greatest that we're making. And so they always have the most efficient equipment possible. But also just like, it's almost kind of like a selection thing. They're a pro because A, they're strong, but probably because going back to your original question, because Arrow is such a big component, even if they weren't thinking about it, they probably were predisposed from birth to be able to get into a position that's more efficient. So in combination with them being very strong, they're very fast on the bike. And so just naturally their body shapes, their types, and just adaptation over the years means that they're able to get in positions that are very, very efficient aerodynamically. So what do you think is the difference? Like think just in your head, like a CDA of somebody who is average versus a... Well, if you, if you uh, kind of accommodate for fit and gear side and you're saying average um it's not out of the question to say 50 plus watts isn't that crazy and you can <laughs> see on the tour everyone looks like they're bent over yeah. like yeah. and it's perfect and they look so beautiful and then you look at me in a picture <laughs> and I, I just don't look so beautiful <laughs> not quite. so yeah this is we're, we're gonna go basic and then kind of go deeper yeah. yeah yeah what's average like if i'm on uh the hoods versus the drops how many how many watts do i save getting into the drops on average so before I jump into the answer there, one thing I will preface, it's kind of like our like, caveat that I always preface uh, these things with is um, anything to do with position is always, it depends. Because yeah. we literally, so kind of like the, the myth that's out there is uh, no matter what, if you drop your stack and your handlebars, you'll always get faster or more aerodynamic. And uh, what we've found is, especially with our pros, that it's now become a coin flip. Like I can't guess looking at a pro mm -hmm. whether they're gonna get faster or actually slower by lowering their bars. And wow. so that's an extreme example, but going to your question of hoods and drops, that's almost always like 100% of the time you're gonna be faster in the drops. Does that work for, for getting narrow though? No, so narrow is the, so getting into the drops, it's always gonna be faster. And just answering that real quick, it of course depends on your position and, and what you're doing, but um, it's upwards of 20 to 50 watts, depending on your baseline position. So if you're fully locked out versus like go fast and like arms parallel. And so like, that's probably the, single biggest change that you can do, especially for free on the bike. Yeah, so you free. get some free speed, especially just like learn how to use the drops and be comfortable in the drops. Like that's incredibly important. Um, but the narrow thing is is interesting because um, that I think has, has always been um, the go-to for pros is to go to narrower bars. And, and I will say for the majority of pros that do it, if you're able to handle your bike and, and not crash, it is faster. But we've seen many, many cases, uh, a not insignificant number of times where we'll have a pro or another athlete go to a narrow bar, but the drag actually goes up. Really? What? Because is that the thing because is it like changes the shape skeletal, of their, skeletal, of their body? Exactly. So like shoulder blades start to interact different, differently with the rest of your body and head position it's kind of like, we'll keep coming back to this. I know Dave talks about it quite a bit. Your head is an incredibly inefficient shape. Like we, we engineers head? like to, uh, yeah, your <laughs> head specifically, yours. but like all of us <laughs> too, yeah. Uh, but us engineers like to oversimplify problems to make mm -hmm. it easier to understand. And a head is roughly a cylinder, a bowling ball. And it's one of the least efficient shapes that you can have aerodynamically. And so anything you can do to get that bowling ball out of the way is good. And so a lot of times when you go narrower, what happens is like you kind of constrict the body, shoulder blades pop out and the head just comes up like almost imperceptibly. Like in the tunnel, we have cameras and we have to like stare at images back and forth to see that the head has shifted a few millimeters. But the drag impact of that, a lot of times can overcome any potential benefit of narrowing your hands wow. and arms. So what, how um, narrow are the pros going in their bars? And for the people that don't move their head, what kind of savings would they get? Yeah, so um, for, the second question, which is just moving your head, assuming it doesn't impact anything, because that's the easiest yeah. uh, kind of case. Assuming it doesn't impact anything else, shifting your head can be 10 to 20 watts. And I'm, we're talking about like a small shift, not like the full turtle and like that looks crazy, you can't see the road. It's like if you just tuck your head down a centimeter or two, a lot. 
Wow. But here's the thing though, our pros, like it kind of ties back to the narrow handlebars thing because what our pros have realized is that um, there was a trend, I would say probably uh, at its peak two, three years ago where pros were going all the way as narrow as possible was it just felt good, it felt fast down to like 38 or maybe sometimes even narrower bars. Um, but a lot of those um, pros and athletes we've been working with at least have started coming back up because the theme, and I've been talking to you guys about it too, is uh, we're trying to get our athletes to the finish line as fast as yes. possible, not have them score the lowest on the drag yep. number. And so what they've realized is that um, with the narrow bars, a lot of times either A, power Im is impacted or their ability to maintain that lower position in the drops of the go fast. And then finally, the education in here with being able to do the testing with the head position is that uh, we've been able to show them that, hey, you're going narrower, so it's from a frontal area standpoint, it's great, but frontal area is half of the CDA equation. The CD is going way up because like your head shape is just not as efficient as it was before. That makes I have, sense. I have this theory. Um, if you look at a picture of me, I'm a taller rider, and inside of a Peloton, my head is like above everyone. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a, a feeling that I have a less draft than everyone else. Is that is that true, or yeah. or is it like the wake so big that my no? Head so matter? unfortunately for you, as a tall person, I'm a little bit tall, not as tall as you too. Is um, that that is absolutely the case because if you combine two things, one, your head is inefficient. That's one. But two, since your head is higher than the rest of the bikes, the bikes in your lower body are getting a great draft. Your head is not getting as great of a draft because the next head is much further away, mm. and so. Um, Proportionally speaking, there's a lot more drag happening there than the rest when you're in the draft. And one of the things I will jump in, and it's actually astute that you picked that out, is um, when we're working with Tom Bonin mm -hmm. with our first Evade helmet. And it's really one of the very, very first Aero Road helmets to hit the market. And so it's new for our pros from a visual and also like sensation standpoint. And his first point of feedback was like, look, I don't need to see any of the tunnel numbers because like what they're used to doing is like he's protected in the pack. And a lot of times what he'll do is he'll sit up and kind of like check out like what's going on at the front. And it was like when the pack's going 50, 60 K an hour, like that motion, you feel it like your neck is a great strain gauge because it's yeah. like, boom, you just get hit by that like free stream of air. And, and his sensation was like the first race he did with the evade is like all of a sudden he was bracing for that impact and he didn't feel it because yeah. it's like you're, you're so in tune with how much of a force your head is feeling normally. Along the lines of drafting, uh, a couple we got a number of questions that people submitted to us for this, and a couple of the questions that kind of relate to this is, in terms of drafting a closeout that a person might have. So, like uh, for example, you know we know with triathlon they always talk about you know the drafting rules, and basically the intent of the drafting rule is to sit outside of the draft of the rider. But we know that you guys have actually shown that you still get some benefit from that draft. But do certain riders, or, or what makes a rider's draft close out quicker than others? Because I swear, I ride behind some big riders, and it's like I'm not even getting a draft behind them. So, like, is it an equipment side thing? I don't know, or if it's just positioning. But what affects how quickly it closes out behind you? That's a great question. And so we'll start at kind of, like, the physics side of it, because it'll help explain, and then go into, like, practical. So um, the drag that you feel is purely just a pressure differential. It's like you, you're hitting the wind, so there's a high pressure in front, and then it leaves a wake, there's a low pressure behind. Mm -hmm. And so um, what happens is if you're lower drag, it means you have a lower pressure differential, which means there's less of a wake behind. And mm -hmm. so if you have a lower drag as a rider, chances are, it's not a guarantee, but chances are you're also leaving a much smaller wake behind. And as a result, you're much harder to draft. Got it. And so that's something that extends to your position on the bike, but also equipment. Mm -hmm. And I know Dave, Dave is like the ultimate drafter and, and kind of like arrow sorcery person around here. And so I'm sure you feel it all the time on our lunch ride. Yeah, you can definitely feel that. And you'll see it uh, put into practice uh, with the teams and athletes as well. They'll choose their order for things like team pursuit or in the team time trial uh, because they want to stack a larger rider like your head sticking up yeah. with a guy that maybe is also taller just ahead. So there's more of a crescendo uh, as far as how that wake is disappearing more quickly or there's a draft uh, uh, that's available to you that wouldn't be available to you if you're drafting uh, you know, Julian Alaphilippe or someone like that that's really small. On the yeah. opposite side of that, on days where there is a 30 mile per hour tailwind and I'm going 22, I feel like I should be sitting up because I wanna have as much pushing, right? Is that, is that right? So that's actually a really common notion and unfortunately uh -oh. misconception. Oh man. Um, so way. here's the thing, it's like, um, and it, the wind tunnel is a great example of this to be able to kind of like illustrate the example. Um, 
we never have to turn around the bike because in the real world, the situation that you explain, you really have to add in the external wind component and what you're doing and figure out what the net still is. And that's what we simulate in here in the tunnel. And so in that case, if you're going 30 miles an hour and there's a 22 mile an hour no, tailwind. 30 mile per hour tailwind, I'm going 22. Oh, so in that case, um, yeah, you're probably doing something wrong. You should uh, sit up and, <laughs> and, and use a sail. Right? Yes. I want to have a bigger, that's, uh, bigger. Sorry, I mis mis uh, misheard your question. That's pretty rare. Right. Uh, frankly and so like in a situation like that which we call uh, the hurricane situation yeah. uh, you should just set up and like at least go the same speed as that wind if possible yeah, yeah so you should yeah. that is where i should put out some extra power but i can sit up until i feel like it's uh, it's really weird because it's super quiet and you're going very fast yeah but i think maybe you i experience it once every five ten years yeah yeah, yeah. but it, but will, i have experienced it will, will a rider with a more aero bike so let's say that they have a bike like like you guys' Venge that's you know aero optimized, and then they have deep section wheels, and they have a speed suit. They have they've optimized themselves aerodynamically. Will their draft out draft close out differently than a person, or will their their tailing draft be differently than a person that's just an average rider? Yes, it'll be much more subtle in that case because the drag of the equipment is so optimized that uh, we spend hours and hours in here literally trying to minimize the wake behind the tube shapes and the wheels and everything like that else that we make. Yeah. And so, yes, there will be a difference, but it'll be much more subtle to the, an average person riding behind than, say, if someone changed their position. So a true friend is the one that just goes totally un yep. and rides in front of you all day. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So um, jumping around a little bit, I want to talk more about the helmets because my head is above. <laughs> uh, you guys have the Prevail and the Evade. How much time is saved with the Evade, or how many watts? And then why would somebody not want to have, like, what would be the case to not wear an Aero Road helmet? Yep. I, I ride them across races, gravel, yep. everything. Yep. And so traditionally, uh, so the difference to answer your first question is uh, think of it on the order of about 10 watts or so. Uh, depending on head position, that's the one big variable because your head position is all over the place. So it can be uh, down into like a couple of watts for extreme cases. Um, very rare. On average, more like 8 to 10 watts and in some cases into the high teens, hmm. uh, depending on the person. But we call it kind of like in the 10 watt range. Now, the, the traditional reason why we've uh, seen athletes um, choose among the helmets is um, weight and ventilation. Weight has kind of like largely uh, gone out of there now because of the education of like what is a few grams difference, if it even exists. Um, and so most people don't really use that as kind of like the performance difference between those helmets, even our pros. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to ventilation. And the, the thing that we talk about a lot too, and the question that I know a lot of people ask that's um, not really related to this is, um, when do I switch over to a, kind of like the traditional version, which is like the prevails, the traditional version of a helmet versus the aero version. We actually did this at Leadville. Nate was gonna do a helmet swap. I don't know if we actually ended up doing it, but no, he was did. gonna, yeah, yeah. He no. did helmet swaps we, yeah. for climbs versus- We did a helmet swap versus... for a climb when it got really hot and there was that's no wind. Thing. That's the thing. So like the, the big difference between them and it has closed. So we just came out this past year with the Evade 2 where we spent almost the majority of our R&D time uh, researching ventilation because we realized that was the biggest difference that caused people to say, hey, I want to ride a different helmet than the Evade on this given race day. And so the gap has closed, but still there's a ventilation difference and that's mm -hmm. primarily it. And while the entire ride may not be constrained, a lot of times when we make product recommendation, set up recommendations for athletes, we will work with them to figure out where their constraining moment is because not many athletes, especially at the pro level, are constrained from like a pure energy standpoint. Like they're all going to be able to finish the stage. Mm -hmm. But some athletes may say, hey, um, like a climber may say, I'm going to really struggle to not get gapped off in an echelon on a flat before the climb. And so they're going to be much more aero focused to kind of make up that difference. Whereas a uh, athlete that is not a pure climber may say, hey, I'm going to get through that crosswind section on the flat really easily. But when we hit that final climb, that's going to be my limiting moment. And so the gear selection, depending on what your limiting moment is, may be different. We ask this, we have this question all the time is it's limiters versus strengths and when to, to, to go for limiters with equipment or just strengths. Because if I'm not getting dropped on a climb, I'm going to win on the flat and I want to have then my strength be arrow. Um, and Maybe we can jump. I, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around the dock. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. When we get this a lot, so you have the tarmac, very light bike, like a, a kind of like a mountain, not a mountain bike, but a mountain stage bike, classic road bike, still pretty arrow. I think it's even more arrow than your first Venge. Yeah, it's about the same aerodynamics as the first Venge, which is incredible. And, yeah. and now you have the new Venge, also light, 
when do you pick which bike and who should buy which bike? Yeah, so um, there's the pro answer and then there's like the everyday person because there's a difference there too. Um, so the pro answer is that there still is with all the technology that we know today from material science to construction technique to shaping the wind tunnel, there still is not a way for us to get Venge level aerodynamic performance at 6.8 race ready. And we're not saying 6.8 as you buy it from the store because that's actually a lighter setup than all our pros because pros need all the robust gear so they don't run the lightest drivetrains as an example. They have to carry transponders, like things like that that mm -hmm. add up weight. And so as race for a pro, um, it's still not quite possible for us to get a 6.8 bike. And so in the situations where um, the limiter for the pros and or the opportunity to make a time difference is on a climb where weight is pretty significant, then they will ride the tarmac, especially since now the aerodynamic delta isn't as great as it once was with a traditional lightweight bike. Yeah. But don't you save, like, when you're climbing, everyone feels the weight, but don't you save, like, there's still drafting or still uh, drag. Oh, absolutely. Win. So where's the cutoff point where you're actually saving more with the, maybe what, it's like two pounds lighter maybe? The, the tarmac than the Venge? It's actually, uh, in many cases, less than that. So we're talking about like a really subtle difference. And so we actually have to run um, pretty significant simulations. So it's it's gotten close enough now that we don't actually have rules of thumb, at least when we're talking mm -hmm. to our athletes. We will run a specific simulation, including weather conditions and the exact grade that we're talking about for huh. a particular stage to be able to make a recommendation. And truth be told, there's very, very few, it's pretty much zero stages where if you just put the simulation in a vacuum and don't account for race tactics or anything else like that, mm -hmm. where um, the Venge wouldn't be the right bike, just purely from a physics standpoint. And I think that's what you're getting to. But when you add in the fact that um, you have drafting and you have protected riders and the fact that um, mm -hmm. in the entire hour climb, there may be one, as an example, 14 to 16% grade that's half a kilometer long and that is where the time gap will come in and after that it's just people maintain the time gap but that's where the difference is going to be created then literally our simulation we will focus on helping select the equipment that allows our athlete to perform and be competitive in that 500 meter segment out of the entire 200 plus kilometers that stage. makes sense i would also argue though you guys know more than me but <laughs> for the whole rest of the stage leading up to that point putting out less power that entire stage might make it that you could overcome the extra that's one and a half Absolutely, pounds. and that's kind of like where the uh, black magic comes in because like, no <laughs> yeah. one can really predict that. And, and that's kind of what I was referring to earlier where it uh, depends on if the athlete is um, kilojoule constrained or if they're watt per kilo constrained for that 500 meter section. And, and what we found is the vast majority of athletes at that level are not kilojoule constrained. Like they can burn a little bit more, yeah. but they like their personal best watt per yep. kilo for that section, they're just not going to do better fresh or... Yep. Yeah, uh, you know, yep. yeah, you can, you can see this play out too, and especially when you pay attention to the riders' equipment and bike choices at races like the Tour de France. You know, when Peter is just trying to get to the finish line when he's not racing, you'll often see him on the tarmac because he doesn't want to struggle for this 15% climb for 2K yeah. or whatever, and just needs to get over that point, and then he's, you know, hydrating and getting ready for the next day. When he maybe has an opportunity to win a sprint, he'll be back on the Venge. Uh, or if he's hunting stages, maybe he's going to be opportunistic and be in the breakaway. He wants that aero advantage. You'll see the same with wheel choices. Mm -hmm. uh, another famous example is uh, Tony Martin had basically a breakaway bike when he was with Quickstep that was super narrow bars and Avenge and all dialed in for those crazy long suicide breaks that he was known for. Uh -huh. And then on days that he was uh, maybe part of the lead out train or, or just trying to survive to the finish line, he'd be on a, on a lighter bike. Um, sometimes I see this too. And I would think from working at Specialized it would frustrate you, but you see a sprint and they win by the narrowest margin and you see them with a, a not arrow helmet on. And I know it wasn't a hot day. Do you guys ever like, throw, well, I mean, wouldn't an arrow helmet in that situation or an arrow road helmet cause that person to win? Most uh, likely. Most likely, yes. And thankfully, we've gotten to the point now because, yes, my eyes do hurt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, we've gotten to the point where the education level is high enough because at the end of the day, it's, it's really just um, put yourself in the shoes. And I had to do this when, when I started in the industry. Put yourself in the shoes of a world-class athlete. You have everyone and their mother telling you what you should be using. And half of those everyone's are like old school, like yep. – tradition especially in this cycling. is the way it has yeah. been and so it's yeah. like in order to really change a game you have to bring the data in a way that's understandable and this facility here has been great for doing that so it's taken some years but we are now at the point where i don't really think i um had a cringe moment like that over the past season <laughs> and good. so I, it's getting better Just wins. Sure. no it's quite the opposite yeah. quite you know when we see riders with the bike throw winning by a tire 
that's the first thing my eye goes to is like, well, where did, the, where did we develop equipment that made that win possible? Uh-huh. There was one at the Tour of California this year. I remember seeing, uh, you know, the finish out, I think it was Gaviria. And, you know, he's beating another rider that's not on the CLX 64 wheel. He's not on the fastest tire. He's not, doesn't have a skin, doesn't have the aero helmet. So no question that the caliber of the riders is all, all good. And Gaviria is no, no question world class. But in that particular day, that half an inch at the finish line, that was equipment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, jumping back to the head, if we can, yeah. I want to talk about glasses and then beards. Yeah, those two things. Yeah. So, um, um, you actually did a video on this. Well, you did a video on both, but a one where you had like regular, you had athletic glasses, like the ones that we use for cycling. You had casual glasses, and then you even had goggles. Yeah, I think the goggles were a bit slower. I think barely, if memory like one watt or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah. Is so it, it's interesting because a lot of people think that you know their their face is like a leading thing that's kind of breaking wind. Yeah. Do you have any theories as to why? glasses don't seem to matter as much because I've yeah. I mean some of them and it seems like they're just getting bigger and bigger and soon yeah. we're just gonna have a face shield <laughs> with glasses but yep. uh, why doesn't it matter um, so there's there's really two reasons um, one is because most of the stuff you put in your face is in front of your face and not wider with exception of some of the ones that you're talking about now and so really you're not changing your drag impact either from a CD or frontal area standpoint that much like the beard it's it's kind of like your neck and your chin are there anyways and so you're not really adding too much mm-hmm. but really the I think the bigger reason is um, going back to the beginning of the discussion the head is such an inefficient shape and if you treat it like a sphere when you're putting goggles on you're basically putting a barn door in front of the sphere and from a aero drag standpoint a barn door and a sphere are pretty similar <laughs> and so it's like you don't you don't really change the cd that much by um putting something bad on top of something already bad unfortunately okay. and the head's not ever really the leading edge is it so it'd be the the front tire the front of the bike is gonna is gonna hit the wind before the head does yeah they're all i would say that the head is far enough away where i would treat that and we treat that as a leading edge still as yeah, in like the okay exactly okay. hands yeah. handlebar um head front wheel but glasses even don't impact that. Exactly. Those are all kind of like front things. But um, again, it's it's such kind of like a bad baseline shape to begin with that those yeah. things don't really. And then I'm <laughs> sure lateral it. movements just murder on aerodynamics. I mean, head bobbing yeah, side to side. Question. Yeah. yeah. Where should we be holding our head and how much when we're on a road bike? I think a TT bike, we've we've kind of done that to death. Yeah. But on a road bike, what do we do? Well, it's actually really similar rules of thumb, um, but with a little bit more uh, towards handling. Because on the TT bike, one of the things that we do are, okay, some of our athletes, namely the Pro Tour ones, have the luxury of having someone on the radio tell them that there's something they're about to hit so they can look down on the road and really have an aggressive head position. But most other people, including our Pro triathletes, have to be able to look up the road Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. crash. And so I would say riding on the road is kind of like a more extreme version of that, which is try to mimic as much of a TT efficient head position as possible while still being able to comfortably and safely see up the road. So it's a lot of the same rules of thumb. The more you can shrug your head down yeah. and reduce the the bowling ball into the your torso area, your shoulder area, the better generally. Along the lines of Chad's question on the sideways movers, now you've had all sorts of athletes in here. Yep. I'm sure you've had mountain bikers in here that yep. like to bounce a whole lot. Is that that lateral movement? Is that something that you guys like recommend to an athlete to cut that down because it's aerodynamically inefficient, or is it something that you don't see that it is a really big deal? And what I mean by lateral movement is like a person that kind of bounces side yeah, to so side when, with their. So body. when you grow the, the the area, you know, the A portion of the CDA, is it a huge impact if it's just a if it's just a small margin of movement side to side? The body like that. It really depends, um, and and to nerd out a little bit, it depends on kind of like the frequency um, yeah. a bit because. If you think about it, the time it takes for air to hit your head and then reach all the way back to the back of the bike going at 30 miles an hour is, is not very long. Yeah, it moves yeah. by really quick. And so if your movement is kind of like slower than that, you can think of it as just like a couple of different static positions. And so if uh-huh. both of those positions are not too bad, then generally we won't see an impact. And we've had athletes come in here that sway and we don't see a difference. We tell them to hold absolutely still. Yeah. Whereas other athletes, if it's like a super choppy movement and all of a sudden your realistic frontal area or your effective frontal area is actually higher, yeah. then there will be a drag impact. So it's another one of those that depends on what the motion actually is. Okay. Getting back to beards. Yes. On, on the beard. So the, the and, and people were critical of this when we asked them, they're like, the beard was like barely peach fuzz on the guy, but it was, it was oh, substantial a, enough. We're going to have to tell them. Um, no, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it, does the beard follow the same rules in the sense that, because, and, and spoiler alert for those that don't know, you can check out the video, but the beard was less effective than one would think in terms of aerodynamics. There's, there's no effect, right? Yeah. Effect, yeah. And no yeah. Effect, right? so exactly. when the beard grows laterally, that's when it becomes more effective? Is oh, that I'm sure, I'm sure, like, if we just, um, my Santa. hypothesis, that was actually... Um, 
to be, that was our first, I think, wind tunnel video we did because like literally that guy showed up and, and asked us like, hey, do you think my beard would be worth anything? And we're like, if you're willing to shave it, we'll test you. Like, that was like the genesis. <laughs> That's awesome. And, but we haven't done it. Like there's been an obsession with body hair since. <laughs> yeah. But we actually haven't gone back and done more extreme beards. But my uh, intuition is that we were probably one step away from like seeing that it actually mattered as in like to your point of the beard were just a little bit bigger and all of a sudden like you are kind of growing out yeah then uh, there probably is going to be a measurable difference in that case so I guess jumping onto the legs from there uh, why are the legs so impactful in terms of, of having leg hair on your legs because shaved legs are faster and, as they are, and how many ones Arms yeah. too, for that matter. Well, yeah. Yeah. Can so, you go? Let's leg, go legs. Yeah. Legs and arms. <laughs> legs by far are, are a huge impact, and so when we we tested in here, we saw an enormous. Um, I think it depends on uh, what we coined as our Chewbacca scale. Um, so there's a little bit of sensitivity to that, but even pretty low on that scale, uh, we saw a massive difference, upwards of uh, 20-ish watts. 20 times. Um, <laughs> do you have to shave it or like I buzz it and get it really close? Do I have to like shave it down to the skin with we, a razor? That, so that's one of those, a lot of people have actually asked yeah, us yeah, that. Sure. Um, and we haven't really tested the kind of like the different, like we actually had some volunteers be like, I'll come back and test every day and let it grow out. And we'll see like kind of like where the drop off is like, we haven't had the time to do that yet, but that'd be interesting. But the point is um, you kind of like stack together a few different facts really. Um, one is uh, the legs. Your legs contribute the vast majority of your body drag on a bike, especially if you have an efficient position. Um, they're two that's cylinders. Why, that's why you're aero well, legs. So, <laughs> he has very yeah. skinny legs. To, to, I mean, yeah. aero so legs. I have me. not the, the most muscular legs, <laughs> and I like to call them aero. Is that true then? Having a less Absolutely. muscular legs would be more aero? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so it it's an advantage? It's, um, sort yeah, of. I mean, there's, there's the other side of the equation too, which is the power side, but uh, yeah. yeah, no, um, the, but that's the thing though. It's like for aero drag, there's, there's two parts. There's CD and there's a, like we all say CDA, we lump it together, but there's two things. There's frontal area, but there's CD. And so it goes into a whole bunch of different things too, where, um, it looks like to the naked eye, I must be making a more efficient shape. So the CD must be better like shoe covers or other covers like that. But your A is, and you may not be improving CD, by the way, like it, it's hard to tell with yeah. the naked eye. But in all those cases, when you're adding something on top, A is going up. And so the question is, did you improve CD enough to offset the up yeah. in A? And so like with your leg, like the A is down, but maybe the shape that your leg happens to be could be less efficient than the average person's leg shape. I don't know. So mm. it, it depends. It's pretty much a bone. Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. So it uh, could be okay then. Round's not great. <laughs> yeah. Almost better. Okay. You know, little calf muscle behind the leg. Yeah, work on that a little. Okay. Bit. <laughs> what about sock length? This is something that uh, the UCI is going to be cracking down on sock length, at yep. least in the year of 2019. Um, have you found, have you tested sock length and found one to be more efficient than another? Again, that's a depends. So um, what's happening there, um, just to kind of go back a little bit, and sorry for nerding out, but it kind of explains. We like no, that. Nerd out. That's why we're here. <laughs> and so like uh, what happens is cycling is uh, in kind of like this interesting area of combination of speed and size of things, like whether there are limbs or bike parts, that um, we get into an aerodynamic regime where surface texture can potentially make a difference in, in an advantageous way. And so what I mean by that is around a shape like a cylinder, which is again, very bad and inefficient, typically the wake that's left behind is created by air separating right at the widest point. And so the wake is literally the largest it could be for that object, so really bad. But if you're able to energize the air on the surface, um, and it's called transition to turbulence, but if you're able to energize it, basically you're giving the air molecules at the surface a little bit of extra energy so that they can follow the surface just a touch more. And by following the cylinder around the back just a little bit more, when they separate, that wake is all of a sudden narrower than the previous case. And so that's what happens with golf balls. Golf balls happen, they're a lot smaller than a lot of the things that we use, but they get hit a lot faster. And so that combination of speed and size called Reynolds number mm -hmm. is about the same as what we're talking about. And so dimples on a golf ball make them fly much further. So the um, texturized surface of a sock would potentially aid, aid so in that. That's the thing. It's like your your lower leg is like a cylinder. And so with the right texture, so with the wrong texture, all you're doing is adding surface area yeah. and bad texture for skin yeah. and drag, even though it's a small component. But with the right texture, you're able to generate that extra um, turbulence or transition energy mm -hmm. for transition to turbulence right at the surface. And so if done right, the wake behind your leg could close a little bit later than it would have without that texture. Is that's that kind of the trip idea. socks? Yeah. Same concept. That's yeah. how that works. Is that why, like, uh, your guys' evade skin suit that you have, 
is not it doesn't feel the same as other materials it's a very very subtle texture but it's the texture on there yeah because yes. there are certain things like and if we could just go into like trip seams and that sort of stuff you know trip seams for those that don't know maybe you guys can explain that but certain ones have that but your evade skin suit is smooth except the surface itself is something unique are you guys accomplishing that with the surface texture of yep. the fabric? Yeah. That makes sense. I was wondering why there weren't trip seams or we see dimples now. We so the see difference between, things. this is absolutely a great question, the difference between trip seams or lines versus a texture, they're both trying to accomplish the exact same thing, which is how do I energize the boundary layer around the object enough so that it sticks a little bit longer and goes around. And the only reason why as an example, a golf ball has dimples all over the surface versus just one trip line around just in front of the equator is because um, the golf ball doesn't know which way it's gonna get hit. Yeah. So you have to have the texture everywhere. If you knew, like mm -hmm. if you're driving a cylinder and it's going straight down the same direction, um, you can actually put a single very, very thin trip line in exactly the right location where you could get the same effect as putting dimples all over the surface, but with much less uh, effect on the surface. But, but that assumes the wind's just coming from exactly. directly Exactly. You, yeah. You'd have to have it oriented just right um, and not have very much margin for error. And so and like we've seen that's a That's not a realistic experience. That's the we thing. Have varying yaw angles of drag, right? And honestly, people just put stuff on not well. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. like you pull on a suit, pull on a sock even, like most people just pull it on and not many people like take the care to align it. Even if you tell them exactly where to put that line, not many people take the care to put it just right. And so it's typically much more robust from a user and performance standpoint to use a texture that accomplishes the same drag reduction effect, but is agnostic to how you orient it. And that's what we did with the Evade Skin Suit. Let, let's say sense. we did put the socks on correctly. What could be the watt save for trip socks on just general? I know not everybody. Yeah, no, it depends. Like, and and I think we've seen uh, differences up to a couple of watts with okay. versus no socks. With versus a bad sock could potentially be a little bit more. What about hairy arms? Hairy arms is another one where um, position matters as well as Chewbacca scale. And so uh, arms as a baseline like aren't typically as hairy as legs. It's kind of weird to say, yeah, yeah. but that's true. And also from a position standpoint, especially with a go fast position, either in aero bars on a TT or a tri bike or uh, in the drops on a road bike, the vast majority of your exposed arm is parallel to the surface. And all of a sudden that shape is not as bad. And the effect of uh, surface friction and uh, increased effective frontal area is less important than a vertical member like an upper arm, which would be covered by a sleeve or mm. a leg. In that, case. that makes sense. What, um, let's talk about clothing next. Yeah. You guys did a great video where you had like a super tight race kit and then you did the Evade skin suit and it was like how many watts saved a skin suit versus even a tight race fit kit? Yeah. So um, that's kind of like the tidbit that we tell people like clothing, cycling clothing feels very expensive. But if you're after performance and you buy the right thing, that is absolutely the best bang for the buck. Yeah, absolutely it, the best. That's bang like for the buck. no one does right, it. You save the most. And oh, like 100%. you talked about. We might train an entire year. You get to the pointy end toward like your you know physical capacity or what your lifestyle allows you to get to, and you'll fight all year for five watts, right? Yep. Like you'll put in how many hours of work, you know, yep. of, of, to get to that. And the so, difference between like to your point, the difference between a, a nice looking road kit. So we're not talking about like a club kit that's like baggy. No, it was and, like, like skin tight. You guys skin did. tight race kit versus uh, something like the Evade skin suit is upwards of twenty plus watts. Twenty watts, but and just so that, from the peril. You can think of like your cycling team, and you go for like the budget stuff. Um, and even if it's if it were high quality stuff, it's tight and you could lose so many races on yes. 20 watts. Oh, like yeah. that's definitely significant. Oh yeah. Like, Absolutely. I mean, that's huge. It's not even. No, the apparel is one of those things where, um, we've been working with our pro athletes and kind of going back to, um, what we're talking about earlier, like not many people probably noticed, but, um, a few years ago, we did an internal test with uh, some of our cross-country athletes for Leadville before anyone was really thinking arrow in cross-country. And uh, we identified a lot of different potential savings, but really apparel was the big one as mm. we're just learning right now. And so since then, if you watch our factory athletes, they've all 100% been racing Leadville in yeah. a eight skin suit. I had a skin such suit a big difference. at Leadville. I don't think I saw anyone else yeah, in the skin suit. Exactly. Can we transfer to mountain biking? <laughs> yeah. Think, well, like, well, let's not let the like, secret like cat out of the bag. You know. Be it's like yeah. <laughs> before we before we do yeah. that, though, I think Dave, you were mentioning something that was interesting on this on how effective, or I guess how aerodynamically inefficient a wrinkle in your kit can be. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like like people might optimize so many other things, but how how impactful is like a, a long sleeve that's kind of bunched up maybe and it has some wrinkles on it, something like that. Yeah, it's hard to put a number on each wrinkle, but 
you know, I like to talk in absolutes when you're, especially when you're helping consumers in particular. Teams can come in here and get custom bikes and custom skin suits and custom, you know, coaches, and, and they have the time to do it. But when we're when we're selling speed, um, things like shaving your arms is never going to be slower. Yep. Like the, the, the benefits may be small, but it's never going to be slower. So coming up with absolutes like that, like, yeah. well, yeah, you could say that shorts and a jersey are more comfortable, but you're never, ever going to be slower with an Evade skin suit. Yeah, yeah. So trip strips, the customized clothing, some of the things that you see the, the world-class uh, time trialists are using, that may not be faster. So Froome's suit on Dumoulin, for example, may not be faster for, mm -hmm. they, they, they literally have this specific equipment. A little bit of what Chris was saying on just dimpling the whole surface. Yeah. That's a way to say, well, we're going to get this benefit everywhere, no matter how hard it's hit, how much spin you put on the ball. Um, so making a product for a consumer, you have yeah. to kind of deal with some of these absolutes. Like, well, we can't custom tailor every single arm size, leg size, torso size. So we'll choose a direction that is always going to be faster than the alternative. That makes um, sense. Even if there's maybe a 1% gain somewhere else with a with a particular trip strip. But in terms of wrinkles, yeah, get the wrinkles out of your clothing. <laughs> you know, most humans on the planet that are riding a bike probably need to be in a small jersey. Yeah. Honestly, like right, yeah. if you can get it zip shut, then it's the right side. <laughs> oh, well, one example of that too is, um, you know, the question between short sleeve and long sleeve skin suits. And um, a lot of people ask us, hey, why is the Evade skin suit short sleeved? And the reason why is like, frankly, there have been very few cases, even in our prototyping, where a long sleeve is faster mm -hmm. because it's so difficult unless you go case by case to negotiate the elbow when you're down in the TT position and have fabric go over that in a way that is ends up being net faster than just not having it on your forearm at all. Yeah, because it introduces wrinkles right there. I could totally exactly. see that. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you know the position that your elbow is going to be in, then how do you, you make, make that better. shape not have wrinkles? Right. So just cut it off at the at the bicep, yep. shave your arms, and that will most often be faster right. know, than, uh, than, a, than a fast full uh, long sleeve skin suit. So to transition to mountain biking. Wait, let me ask one more one thing. Yeah, please. Um, how much of the difference between a skin suit and a jersey shorts combination is due to the pockets? So, I mean, if they took pockets off of a really tight-fitting jersey and shorts combo, would it be almost as fast as a skin suit? So, that's actually a great question. And, and when you get more optimized with clothing, it's kind of like the uh, rich get richer. The pockets matter less and less. And uh -huh. so, our Evade skin suit actually has pockets in them. Okay. They're pretty, like, high-volume pockets. And we found that they don't actually introduce, and with the vast majority of riders in, in positions, they don't actually introduce more drag. Now, that's not going to be the case for, like, a club-fit jersey where the pockets are enormous and hanging out, and all of a sudden, like, they're exposed. But it's kind of one of those things where the pockets in a apples to apples comparison of a tight fitting kit versus mm -hmm. tight fitting skin suit. If you had things in those pockets, I would expect you would still see that same aerodynamic benefit. So that begs the question: Why would you wear anything other than a skin suit? Well, I mean, there's, uh, there's, I'm sure there's a when lot of racing. reasons. Like, but for racing, like, yeah, there for is. Racing. Like, if you watch like the kind of pro races on TV now, um, it may not look like it because they kind of make it look traditional still. But if you look closely, pretty much. Almost 100% of the Peloton is racing in a uh -huh. skin suit of some sort now. Okay. Hey, go watch, go back and watch some of the old videos of Perry Roubaix and stuff. Yeah. No, no one's in a skin suit like sure. ten, ten years ago. Even you uh, saw yeah. very, very few, and now almost universal. There Makes is some sense. Kind of, uh, a custom speed suit. Okay. So, so Dave, uh, since you're focusing on components and that sort of thing, this one might uh, be perhaps in your wheelhouse, and I'm sure you can chime in on this too, Chris. But wheels um and this will transition into mountain bikes because i want to talk about width of wheels like mm -hmm. it seems like internal width is getting wider which then makes in most cases also the rim a little bit wider are we kind of getting to a point now where like the arrow and because a wider wheel is proving in most cases to give you less rolling resistance have you guys felt like you've optimized either end of that like they're as arrow as they're going to get so now we're focusing on rolling resistance or do you feel like there's still a lot of room to grow and our wheels just going to keep getting wider well first i want to say that getting rid of rim brakes is going to really open up wheel design dramatically um, our current generation generation wheels are as fast as anything available in a spoked wheel for sure um, our disc wheel uh, for our, our 321 disc wheel we introduced this wheel this year rather excuse me takes a little bit of what you just said as far as we know that clinchers have less rolling resi resistance. We know that clincher tires can be molded in an aerodynamic shape where you can't mold the shape mm -hmm. of a tubular tire. Mm -hmm. So to make the fastest wheel, we made it a clincher, tubeless compatible, mm -hmm. um, and designed it around a width that uh, accommodated what size tires people want to use to race on. And so we have the fastest disc wheel, uh, aerodynamic time trial disc, but in terms of disc brakes, yeah. removing the brake caliper around the fork and around the stays we're going to allow, uh, it's going to allow us to expand on what type of shapes 
are possible. That makes sense. Uh, Will we all be riding like 25 mil with mountain bike wheels soon? Well, the thing is like, um, that's kind of the interesting thing is because um, when you introduce aerodynamics into it too, um, there is a limit because uh, if you think about it, the wider you go in order to keep the same aspect ratio of shape, it has to get deeper. And all of a sudden you get into weight and inertia and handling trade-offs as well. And so it goes all the way back to kind of like that full equation of am I faster at the end of the day? And the wheel is is incredibly important for handling as well, the wheel plus tire interface. Mm-hmm. And so for our athletes, it's kind of like the combination of what's the fastest rolling tire and rim interface, what's the best handling combination, especially when you talk about crosswinds and things like that, yeah. and, and being able to transition in and out of corners, turn in, turn out. Um, and then finally, just static aerodynamics that as well. Sense. And so it's, it's one of those things where it is going to be a balance, but it's going to be very discipline oriented in some cases you need a much wider tire and in some cases you can afford a less wide tire that makes sense on mountain biking let's talk about that um so maybe when a person like me races we don't quite pass that 13 mile an hour (laughs) threshold sometimes we do in terms of average speed for our race Uh, there are certain times there are certainly times in a course where we're riding at 18 20 22 miles an hour and pedaling and fighting wind right um but I look at like the times of like, you know, Jeff Kabush or Howard Grotz, Keegan Swenson, these type of mountain bikers, and they're averaging on an XCO course 15 miles an hour. They're averaging even higher than that on marathon courses. Uh, why aren't mountain bikes arrow? Is it just a matter of they aren't arrow yet? Or is there like you talked about the trade off? Is that what's governing it? Yeah, I think on mountain bikes that it's basically the trade-off is a slightly more extreme version of what we're just talking about, which is um, at the end of the day, when we first did that level test, and this was a few years ago now, one of the things that we were very conscious of, mostly because it was right before Leadville, was we didn't want to change anything with the rider's position or the bike setup that would impact how it handles because it's much, much more technical than a road Mm -hmm. uh, course, generally speaking. And so um, with mountain, what happens is, especially with full suspension bikes, that um, how the frame is designed, there's a lot more variables that we have to accommodate for. And so a stiff platform no longer means stiff from like the traditional roadie sense of torsionally stiff and being able to turn into a corner, but also stiff in the, from the standpoint of being a good suspension platform. And yeah. so we have uh, controlled movement through the suspension and not uncontrolled movement f- through frame, frame flex. And so all of a sudden, the uh, shapes that we're designing from an aerodynamic standpoint have to be re-optimized to be able to accommodate for uh, having suspension components on there. That's interesting. So do you think that we'll see aero frames on mountain bikes in the the future? I think uh, potentially, and it's one of those things where um, if it's a sport that has a finish line, is what we like to say, it's (laughs) probably going to get aerodynamic. It doesn't matter what sport on earth it is. And it's just a matter of will technology catch up to the point where we can introduce that benefit without a greater disadvantage somewhere else. That makes sense. um, For gravel racing too, uh, people don't, I think, pay enough attention to Aerodynamics. I see so many people in baggies with a visor on their helmet. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a Franken bike that I want to tell you guys about, but you guys can sell it. It's okay. You'll take this <laughs> idea. Hard work or a hardtail epic with aerofly bars, drop bars, with a internal dropper post right to the left shifter and one by for the right. And I think that for gravel racing with the with the brain in the front or for Leadville, like I'm thinking I would say with position alone, 30, 40 watts. Is that that's uh you might have something there depending on the race. I mean, I think for some gravel races, you might be able to get a little bit more extreme, to be honest. Like I've seen Dave set up is a little bit more extreme for gravel races. Yep. But for something like Leadville, that seems uh, like a pretty good uh, ticket. What's your setup by like, descending. I'm curious now. What's your yeah. setup? Yeah, yeah. Tell us. I can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give away my, my seat. Yeah, yeah. No, Dave, Dave's <laughs> got a pretty extreme one. There's there's definitely, when you you brought up gravel, but like in, in mountain bike racing and in, in the cyclocross racing in particular, there are definitely areas where speed is significant and the aerodynamic benefit that's, that's this low-hanging fruit that's just sitting there uh, is definitely available. But going back to these sort of absolutes, we're going to make the products faster, not, okay, Arrow is part of that, mm-hmm. um, but we need to be able to say it's absolutely faster, it's always going to be faster, in every condition it's going to be faster, otherwise we're going to have to do an Epic and an Epic Arrow, and we're going to have yeah. to do yeah, a Stump yeah, Jumper and a Stump Jumper Arrow, right? So uh, when we can go to our athletes and say, here's the new shape of Epic, and the shape is faster in these ways, um, and it, you know, Arrow shape is not slower than round, or we can put the pivots in the right place, or we have the tire clearance we need, lot lot of things to consider um then yeah i think that there's a i think there's definitely a market for it for sure as as, as chris said, as long as we're all racing in air and there's a finish line then there's a place for arrow i have another product request 
um, for, for mountain biking. <laughs> I, the only reason on some courses I don't wear a aero road helmet is because I'm afraid of crashing on rocks, the back of my head. I would love a protection all the way down like you guys have on the, I forget the name of it, start with the D. Um, Descent, perhaps. I can't remember the name well, of that. Dissident is our, yeah, that's it, well, yes. that's our full face. We also have oh, no, an ambush. That one. We have I'm, an ambush, okay. which is like that's an arrow. I'm thinking of the ambush. Yeah. Ambush, yeah. An, uh, arrow ambush. Because I want the protection, but I still want the arrow. Hmm. And I bet you people would, I, I personally, well, I thought, <laughs> you'd get one sale. <laughs> the along thing is those, like, along yeah. those lines, do you see, uh, have you had a downhill rider in here in the winter? Oh, absolutely. Summer? Yeah, and, and what sort of optimizations have you made to somebody on that side? Yeah. This could apply to somebody that does gravel racing but just wants to wear baggies or is the, and wants to save energy. Or is the type of person that's racing enduro or downhill or anything else like that? What sort of optimizations have you found with them? Yeah, so we'll talk about the, the gravel athletes in a second, but I would say for gravel athletes, it's probably more the advice that we would give is more in line with what we tell our cross-country athletes when they test in here because it's more similar in terms of the gear and the setup and everything like that. So the things that generally don't impact position but are free like truly free speed are um set up so make sure your cable management is tidy number plate like don't just have the barn door hang out in front um uh, hydration did a video on, like, on number plates I we think, did right? a, yeah, did yeah a video on number plate uh, helmet mm -hmm. apparel like all the things that we've been talking about really here if you pay attention there as closely as you would in a road race generally you'll save quite a bit but for the gravity thing the, the interesting part is that's more extreme and kind of like in every way really yeah, um yeah. but the, the thing is, when we test our gravity athletes in here, we really, really are careful to not change anything that changes the kind of dynamic setup of their bike mm -hmm. because it's such a kind of technical um, skill that they have to have that if we change something that affects how they feel the terrain or how they're positioned on the bike and distribute their weight, that could be extremely disastrous. Like no yeah. amount of time save is going to fix like you yeah. being on the side yeah, of the trail. Yeah. Exactly. But at the same time, World Cup races are decided. The podium a lot of times is like less than a second right. delta from first all the way through third. And so a lot of uh, the testing that we do in here, we're finding that we're saving one change at a time, a tenth of a second, maybe even just a few hundredths of a second. But find me a world-class gravity athlete that won't take a few hundredths of a second for free, oh, like no true. other difference. And so a lot of the same things, were, whether it's like just slight differences in cable management, how the bike mm -hmm. is built, to slight differences in how you tuck your pads, to slight differences in how you angle your visor, like very, mm -hmm. basically we like to say things that like pretty much no one, no one, excuse me, would notice if you walked up to the start house and we made all those changes, but actually add up to a few hundredths or even a few tenths of a second. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Do you want to rip through some rapid fire ones? We only have, you know, a couple minutes left here. Are there um, any other ones we want to cover? Yeah. What's the, when I put my number plate on like a Grand Fondo or mountain bike race and it's flat, what kind of drag am I adding? What kind of Watts lost am I adding? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, um, people are adding it to a traditional setup, so a round bar with a round head tube and things like that. So those aren't great anyway. So I guess the good news is it's not too much more in those cases. It's a few watts, like upwards of They make me do it on my Venge. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a little bit more because those tubes are much more optimized. So in cases like that, it could be upwards of five watts, depending on how big and like rigid that plate is. Aerofly bar, which is your aero bar, how many watts do I save on that over a round bar? Uh, between four and five watts. Jeez. Yeah. yeah so it all adds up. I mean, yeah, these are all like I'm running large a tally in my head. Yeah, exactly. Don't yeah. don't don't wrap bar tape over it. Oh yeah, don't wrap all the uh, way yeah. over the, the flat bar. That's I had a bike shop do that to me. I said, nope, do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess an, another question that I kind of want to talk about. Do you on the hydration side of things? You mentioned hydration packs. Have you found hydration packs to be? And I think you did a test on this as well with uh, with Amy Tetrick, but. Um, I'm sure it depends on the pack and how it's being worn, but are hydration packs something that you would recommend to your athletes that are doing marathon races? Or is that something where you would say, if you can, stick to bottles? Well, it depends because uh, I say that a lot, but yeah. that's kind that's of like a true facility. Yeah. So um, it's always, what is the alternative? And we do this with our triathletes uh, racing the Ironman distance as well. It's like if you're thinking of one way of carrying your hydration and nutrition, what's the alternative that you would have had? And in most cases, so in Allie's case, for example, she would have had to carry some really large bottles. Mm -hmm. And so her pack, even though on its own was a little bit of extra drag, it wasn't as much as all the different bottles that she would have to carry somewhere on her bike in that case. And so I think for a lot of similar athletes in a similar situation in marathon, if you're going to be carrying bottles like hooked all over the place, then a hydration pack 
in exchange could actually, a low profile one could actually be a net benefit. That's interesting. Okay, Jonathan's uh, arrow TT test, he was sub 0.2 CDA. <laughs> is that, how, how does that, I, I don't want to say the words, but how, how is that? <laughs> that is, um, Jonathan, congratulations, because that is legitimately <laughs> world class. There oh, are, uh, yeah, there are very few athletes <laughs> that we have in here that uh, go sub 0.2, because like you have to have a combination of being um, not too large of a person, mm -hmm. but also uh, the ability to get into an aerodynamically efficient shape. And so that, that combination is pretty rare. Even with pros, like pro. No, absolutely, oh, yeah. even yeah. with there's, pros. There's world, world champions, Olympic champions that are much higher drag. Wow. Yeah. They just have a whole lot more power. Yeah. You can well, have you as got, low a drag you as you need. You got one thing covered. <laughs> You're exactly right. Just one of the six two. watts per kilo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the passive step. part's taken care of, right? Um, I, the, the final one is a bit of a hypothetical, but perhaps you guys have particular sticking points. Um, we're all governed, or you're governed by UCI rules. Um, I guess we all are as racers, but uh, what one thing do you wish you could change and it's you constantly get frustrated with, but you can't change because of the rules? Is there one specific thing, whether it's bike design or equipment design or anything else? Mm, you know what? Not really, because the thing is, um, I'll start with this. The kind of similar question I thought you were going to ask that pretty much everyone asks us is, hey, how different would the next Venge look or the next whatever look if there were no UCI rules, thinking that it'd be some crazy, crazy bike, and maybe yeah. it would be. But generally speaking, um, a race bike, going back to the, the main theme, has to be the bike that gets you to the finish line the fastest. And especially with how crazy the courses are, how technical they are, how steep they are, uh, it has to be a pretty complete race bike. Mm -hmm. And from a structural standpoint, um, double diamonds are really, really structurally efficient. There are other shapes that could get you there too. Um, and so by and large, if you're going to say, I want to make a bike that uh, gets you to the finish line as fast as possible over this like very terrain, um, and you step back a hundred meters, if we took away the UCI rules, it would be pretty different to like the people in the know, like you guys would be like, that's a pretty different bike. But to the average person, if you still stood back and looked at it from kind of like the hundred foot view, it wouldn't be that dramatically different. And so, um, that's a long way of saying the UCI mm -hmm. rules are are details that w the engineers get to work with, and yeah, they'll change it one way or another. But I don't think there's any one thing that would dramatically uh, change kind of what the shape of a bike is. That personally, Dave, is there anything that that chaps your hide? Yeah, a little bit. I think that before <laughs> the the charter in 1996, I think there was a lot of creativity, mm. yeah, a, a lot of bad designs, you know, <laughs> and, and things that. We now have the, in retrospect, have the ability to test the Lotus Superbike, uh, the GT Superbike. Those bikes were great for that era, but they're they're not as fast as bikes are today. Hmm. Uh, the Lotus, for example, is like a 10 kilo bike. Right? So you're just <laughs> not going to get people to to use that. Um, and also, you know, has probably 30% more drag than the fastest bikes today, even ones that are UCI legal. So there's there's definitely less creativity. And we read the boredom from the internet forum and the, oh, every bike looks the same now. And like every bike looked the same when it was all made out of Columbus steel tubing. Also. <laughs> yeah. So the I think there's not a, look the same. <laughs> yeah, there's, there are definitely some outliers for sure. Um, one thing I think that we can approach is we can approach a net zero frame without UCI rules. So a frame that has no drag, wow. you know, across a wide spectrum of, of yaw angles. I don't think you can get that with um, the aspect ratios that we're confined to today. Makes sense. Um, and I don't think it's like, on the drawing table because the creativity has yeah. kind of been stymied a little bit. You know, we haven't gotten close to, to that. Um, what about in triathlon? From, Could you get there? Are there improvements to be made? Potentially. So yeah. you mentioned the Shiv, which we just launched a, a couple of months ago, and, and there were no rules there. And so a lot of people looked at that bike when we launched it. And, um, <laughs> a lot of different feedback, but one of the points was like, it's not as crazy as I thought because like I think triathletes have been almost like tuned by the industry to expect a really crazy bike for the sake of crazy. Whereas um, we designed that bike to be the fastest bike possible to go across the Queen K. And uh, if you take into account everything the bike has to do, including carrying things, being stable and being low drag, that's the thing that came out of that optimization process. But yes, you can go quite a bit further. That is definitely not UCI legal in, in many ways, but probably more subtle than people think. Yeah. And that bike, one of the original targets, which frame alone we still pretty much are at is to Dave's point, it's like, can the bike take care of itself completely from a drag standpoint in a crosswind like at Kona. And so that's the reason why some of the shapes on that bike are as deep as they are. And there's that many sails on the bike with the fork legs in the back. That makes um, sense. Yeah. yeah. And other real specific rules, like if I were to develop a frame, uh, maybe for team pursuit, like it would be great to have a smaller front wheel so yeah. that that guy's arrow bars kind of overlap the next guy ahead of him's rear wheel. Oh, wow. So a little, but that's like one specific example that Dave goes deep. <laughs> Dave's going deep. Over so 
okay. yeah, like let's throw out the rule book and make everyone faster, but you're going to end up with like this fractured specificity. Yeah, I won't actually design. enjoy it as a consumer. Right. Things yeah. will get really expensive. Yeah. So uh, no, we've done a great job in, in kind of incorporating what the UCI has done, and also. You know, we use the word, we cheat the rules, you know, move the boxes around a little bit and, and, and interpret them in a way that makes, you know, maybe not the way that the, was, the rule was written, but a way that allows us to manufacture. And Makes so, sense. I mean, every bike People that you're that buying. Taxes. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> every bike that you're buying and selling today at the front of the arrow list is faster than bikes that, you know, from two generations ago that were not UCI legal. Makes perfect sense. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. It was uh, fun. Thank yeah, you. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much. Nerding out with us. If you're curious about anything that's going on with Specialized, you can find them on social channels, specialized.com. You can find them all the wind tunnel stuff on YouTube. Uh, if you're curious about what we do here at Trainer Road, trainerroad.com. We'll actually have a post in our forum about this at forum.trainerroad.com. And you can jump in there and uh, we'll try to field any any sort of questions that, that merit answering by these gentlemen here. We'll see if we can field them over. But you can join the conversation around this conversation that we just had. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.